Welcome to ReachMD. You are listening to Lipid Luminations, produced in partnership with the National Lipid Association and supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. Your host is Dr. Alan Brown, Director of the Division of Cardiology at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital and Director of Midwest Heart Disease Prevention Center at Midwest Heart Specialists at Advocate Healthcare. You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Nissen, Chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Steve, we go back a lot of years. I want to publicly thank you for all the support for education and prevention that you've provided, even during your term many years ago as head of education for the ACC. But it's a, it's a treat to be able to talk to you because you have such a wide scope of interest and a wide breadth of knowledge. Thank you very much, Alan. So I know you're going to be presenting a talk on intravascular ultrasound, which is kind of your baby and done so much work with it. So if I were to ask you, what do you think are the most exciting developments of IVIS and you know, whether or not you think that's ever going to be a surrogate for development of, of drugs in terms of predicting outcomes and just your thoughts on IVIS in general? Well, first of all, in the answer to your second question, will it ever be a surrogate that we can use for approval? I think the answer is no. You know, the world has moved away from surrogate endpoints, and that includes even endpoints like LDL cholesterol, which, you know, I think the FDA still accepts as a surrogate. But all surrogate endpoints eventually fail. You come along with something that you think is going to work, you know, a drug that lowers blood pressure or lowers blood sugar, you know, some established surrogates. And and then when you actually study it in a clinical outcome trial, you find out that it actually harms rather than helps. Now, I think IVIS is a really interesting surrogate in drug development because it allows us to do proof-of-concept studies, to take something unusual. An example would be APOE1 Milano, which was a really interesting study we did a decade ago. We're now studying again in a clinical trial. And you can find out in a small number of patients in a relatively short amount of time whether or not the drug actually is going to affect the burden of atherosclerosis in the arteries. And that information can then de-risk a program and allow a developer to then have some confidence that they can move on and do a major clinical outcome trial and have a reasonable probability of success. But I don't think the regulatory community is going to accept this as a substitute for really measuring what counts for patients, which is heart attack, death, stroke, unstable angina, those sorts of endpoints. So I know you have strong interest in some of the novel treatment therapies that are being developed and looking at IVIS as a possible hypothesis-generating project. I guess, what about the flip side? What if you have an agent that affects a risk factor that one would feel is likely going to translate into outcomes, and then you do an intravascular ultrasound trial and you find out there's no difference How discouraging should that be? Well, we've done that, and I'm going to talk about that in my my discussion about intravascular ultrasound. I can give you a couple of examples that I think are going to stand the test of time. You may remember that ACAT inhibitors were very hot for a while. There were a number of studies done. There were a whole bunch of these in development. One of them was developed by Sankyo, now Daiichi Sankyo, called Pactamibe, and uh, we did a you know, medium-sized IVIS trial, you know, five, six, seven hundred patients, something in that range. When we unblinded the data at the end of the trial, the ACAT inhibitor 
not only did it not slow or reverse the progression of atherosclerosis, it actually made it a little bit worse. And industry looked at that and they said, gee, something which is actually increasing disease progression is very unlikely to translate into a clinical benefit. And those programs did not proceed. Now, were we right or were we wrong? I don't think we know the answer to that. But I was comfortable that was a good decision. The other was torcetrapib. Right. We did an IVIS trial with torcetrapib. It did not reduce disease progression. And as I think everybody knows, torcetrapib, the CTP inhibitor developed by Pfizer, ultimately was harmful in a clinical trial. There have now been several additional CTP inhibitors studied, dalcetrapib, which was neutral. And I know everybody is aware that we did the evacetrapib trial with Eli Lilly, and we've announced that the study was stopped for futility. The data will be presented soon and, and, and published, uh, and people can then draw their own conclusions. So the IVUS evaluation of torcetrapib seems to have held up pretty well over time. So those two examples make me feel reasonably comfortable that if something really is producing no benefit or even producing evidence of harm in an IVUS trial, it's not very likely to produce a clinical benefit. So now that we're on the topic of CTP inhibitors, I mean, you are a clinical trialist par excellence. I've had the privilege of sitting on some ad boards and listening to how you look at trials and, you know, very thoughtful. And you've seen the data on CTP inhibitors, at least for these few that that, that haven't borne any fruit. So, you know, we've got a couple more out there. I'd be curious as to your thoughts about the whole concept of CTP inhibition and whether you think the drugs that are still under investigation are, are likely to show any benefit. Well, I have to be a little bit careful here because uh, we have announced that we terminated the Accelerate trial with Evacetrapib, but we haven't actually presented the data. And I think that this is one where I believe that the scientific community... We'll need to look at the results of the Accelerate trial for Avacetrapib, take a look at what the effect was on LDL cholesterol, look at what the effect was on HDL cholesterol, and then look at what happened to the major morbidity and mortality endpoints. And then I think everybody will have to make their own mind up. It is a reality that when you test a hypothesis... You certainly generally don't want to abandon a class of drugs when you have a single trial. You may not even want to abandon it when you have two trials. It starts to get a little tough to believe in the mechanism if you have three trials where it didn't succeed. Now, there is ongoing trial with anisetropib, which is Merck's drug, Although I believe that in, no matter what happens with that trial, anisetropib cannot be developed as a successful drug. That a drug has a long half-life. Half it's around for you know, four years. If you get one serious allergic reaction or Stevens-Johnson syndrome or something like that, the whole program blows up. And I don't think it's prudent you know, you give it to a woman, she can never get pregnant. You know, the, these are all the issues that we face. And drugs that hang around for years in the body represent a risk to patients that is just not acceptable. And so unless the study were to show some spectacular benefit, 
I don't imagine that uh, anisotropib will ever come to market. So essentially, we've got a problem and that we've got multiple failures, and it remains to be seen whether anybody can make this mechanism work. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm here with Dr. Stephen Nissen, Chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. Well, thanks, Steve, for the insights on some of the newer drugs in development. I- I'm going to shift gears again because I've actually, I- I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. So as you know, there was plenty of controversy about the 2013 ACC recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. You may know that there's a new document that will soon be published that sort of, I think, it's, uh, at least for the area of non-statins, gives some guidance and likely will have some thresholds for treatment back in it. But I, I'd just like to hear your thoughts about should all our eggs be in the statin basket and should numbers not be part of the equation? And if they should be, in what types of patients? So let me hear your thoughts. About well, I was one of the people that was probably the most strident in criticizing the 2013 guidelines. And I think there were a number of problems with the guidelines, some of which were related to the process way which they were developed, and of course the results and what they were actually being recommended. I mean, no felt that they're on for the process, right? They were. This is a process they they were was thrust upon the group. Well, first of all, uh, I, I'm not going to buy that. You know, <laughs> when you're on a guideline committee, you have to make your own mind up. Nobody can tell you what you should write. You have to make your own mind up. But I will tell you that the guidelines, there were several things that I criticized about them. One is this a sudden abandonment of target levels. Now, I, I, you know, obviously my thinking is colored by some of the studies that we and others have done where more intensive LDL lowering has proven over and over again to do several things, including dramatically slow or reverse the progression of atherosclerosis and reduce morbidity and mortality. I think of trials like TNT, 10 versus 80 milligrams of tarvastatin. Now, you can believe that it's the dose of the drug, or you can believe that it's effect on lipids that made the difference. I happen to think it was its effect on lipids. And so the idea that it is not appropriate to target lower levels of LDL cholesterol, which was essentially what the guidelines said, I can't accept. The other, what I believe is really pretty unforgivable mistake that the guidelines made is they included in the guidelines a risk calculator that had never been published. That can't make societal sense. When we used Framingham, the Framingham risk calculator in prior guidelines, there were hundreds of manuscripts that had been written testing that calculator and looking at it and understanding its pros and its cons. And all of a sudden, we get a guideline for 300 million Americans with a risk calculator nobody had ever seen before. That can't make any sense from a scientific point of view. And it was a very big mistake. What I believe should have happened, and I hope will happen in future guidelines, is what the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force does routinely, is they write a draft guideline, they put it out for public comment, they allow physician scientists from around the country, around the world, to comment on it. And then based upon that feedback, they then refine and finalize the guidelines. The 2013 guidelines was done in absolute secrecy. They literally made people sign in blood 
that they wouldn't talk to anybody about the guidelines. Now, why is that a good idea? Shouldn't the guideline be something that we all look at together, think about, write about, evaluate, and test, and then gets finalized? And so this idea that a guideline should be a top-secret endeavor is frankly not sensible, and I hope it's not the way it's done in the future. Yeah, I think, you know, we probably learned a lot from the lessons of this, the way this group proceeded in following the Institute of Medicine's recommendations to a degree. As you know, there's a new group getting ready to write another set of guidelines, and probably that's the quickest reiteration of guidelines in our our history, right, to see something come along. One thing that strikes me that I thought was good about the ACC recommendations was people had very little guidance what to do when someone had a coronary event and their LDL was not so high. Yeah. Right? So, uh, And maybe I could get your thoughts on that. So the new set of guidelines says treat risk. And if you go back and look at heart protection at the same risk, regardless of LDL, they got the same benefit from treatment. So when somebody has an LDL in 95 and has an acute coronary syndrome, do you use tenopravastatin or do you use adiovatorva? And, you know, as a scientist and who's looked at all the literature, do you think it makes sense to use the high dose? Because at least in clinical trials, that's been tested. Well, the one thing that's pretty clear on the clinical trials is it doesn't matter where you start. Right. You know, if you look at a pretty good study, prove it. You know, people who started lower and got intensive statins did better than people who got less intensive statins. And so I do think that treating people that have had a recent event with high-intensity statins, and I can tell you what our policy is at the Cleveland Clinic. You come in with an MI, and you leave on 80 milligrams of atorvastatin. I don't care what your LDL was when you came into the hospital because the, the available data suggests that that approach reduces risk. And so... I, I think that is an important concept, you know, the concept of intense statin therapy. But we don't know of any harms. You know, we have people in some of our clinical trials that have LDLs in the single digits, and they appear to be perfectly healthy. And so if there's not really a harm associated with getting LDL down, and if the evidence is there for the benefit, then I think that's what we should be doing. You can't be skinny enough, you can't be rich enough, and your LDL can't be low enough, right? Well, I actually like that, and I say the same thing, something very similar myself. <laughs> so actually, a hybrid approach is sort of what you're advocating. Yeah. If they have high risk, use intensive therapy, no matter where yeah. you start. Yes. But if you use intensive therapy and you don't achieve a reasonable number, yes. you've got to add more, right? That's right. And I think we'll know more when we get the results of Fourier, which I believe will be the first PCSK9 inhibitor a trial to complete, whether intensive statin therapy with an add-on of PCSK9 inhibitor produces incremental reduction in risk. That will be really interesting. Well, Steve, I am very disappointed we're out of time because I could talk to you for hours. I rarely get to talk to you even personally for more than 30 seconds as you're flitting from one place to another. So I can't thank you enough for joining us today on Lipid Illuminations. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association and ReachMD. Please visit ReachMD.com slash lipids where you can listen to this and other podcasts in this series. And make sure to leave your comments and share those podcasts. We welcome your feedback. And once again, I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Lipid Illuminations. 
produced in partnership with the National Lipid Association and supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. To download this program and others in this series, please visit reachmd.com forward slash lipids. That's reachmd.com forward slash lipids.